Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. So we here we are in the holiday season, Gene, and it's a time of the year when we should all love one another and be happy and friendly, right? Well, that's the tradition, of course. Right, of course. We're supposed to love our fellow man and be accepting of our fellow man's foibles and fallacies and be open and love the season. Well, I'd like to officially make us a new enemy. What do you think about that? Well, you know what? They'll just join the club. We have enemies, so we'll have more enemies. So, okay, you want to make an enemy, yeah. go, go for it, man. Oh, boy. I hate to do this, but in a way I don't hate to do this because we've become known as the place where you can actually talk about these topics, the many topics that we cover, in somewhat of a serious fashion. I mean, I've been accused of being irritating and making strange voices and doing all sorts of other things that people don't appreciate. But... We like, almost sounded like Brother Theodore there for a second. No, come on. No, Brother Theodore is a whole nother. Yes, David, I will tell you about my stuff. Brother Theodore had the whole heavy German thing going because he was German, of course. But no, no, no. We love Brother Theodore. May he rest in peace. This is not about Brother Theodore. I have never is, laughed so hard in my stuff, life. Right? Oh, yeah. that was incredible. He is quite the find, and, and most people don't really know much about him. And uh, he was one of these really strange underground comedians. You know what? It's not even right calling him a comedian. He was, uh, how do you categorize Brother Theodore? He, he was a, an apocalyptic philosopher. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Unlike the shamster known as Jose Escamilla, the guy who is behind the incredibly ridiculous, nonsensical rods photography phenomenon. Now, a lot of our listeners probably know about this because this guy has been peddling for years these video segments that he shoots of this incredible, unknown, cryptozoological entity known as the Rod, which right there, I could go off on a thousand tangents about jokes about alternate meanings of the word Rod. But bottom line is that this guy recently showed up on AboveTopSecret.com, the most popular website for controversial and conspiratorial information on the web. Certainly, uh, Mr. Ritzman and myself have been fairly active on there as image analysts, but this guy shows up there and starts to peddle his crap. And let's be clear about this, Gene. If Escamilla touches it, it's garbage. That's the bottom line. The guy is a shyster of the first order. He's been peddling this junk for years. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because... Um, I guess by the time this episode airs, this will have happened a couple of weeks ago. But there was a thread on there about his incredible Rods video, um, or videos, I should say, where basically what he's done is he's captured flying insects and the NTSC artifacts that we see as a result of the frame rates these things are shot at makes him think he's captured something unusual. And the thing is that he uses the idea that he is some kind of an imaging person, that he... He's a video expert. He's researched this, and he knows. Now, I bring this up, Gene, because what we see in this field is the constant reoccurring nightmare. People who claim to be an expert about something that they have no understanding of whatsoever. And, by the way, on the Paracast, the only thing that I personally claim to be an expert at is digital imaging and Photoshop. That's my specialty. I don't claim to be an expert on the paranormal. I am every bit as befuddled as anyone else about what UFOs are, 
what are ghosts and apparitions on this show, I think we try to ask some hard questions without saying we have definitive answers. So definitive answers are a problem. Anyway, to get back to the point, and I'll make this sort of short, even though I know that by definition we're no longer talking about this in a short, concise way. Are you still there, Gene? Yes, be short and concise. You have four minutes left. To be short and concise, then you can be long and filibustering and all that stuff. So on this thread on Above Top Secret, somebody had brought in an image of Ipetus, one of uh, Saturn's moons. And there is this photo from the Cassini probe that shows Ipetus clear, well-defined, because, of course, the camera on Cassini is locked to Ipetus and is tracking it. And then we see these streaks of light that any first-year photography student knows are stars. They're stars that are streaked because, of course, these are long exposures. And uh, in those exposure times, even though Ipetus is being tracked by this camera on Cassini, the stars themselves that are part of our galaxy are moving because, of course, the probe is moving. So we see those stars appear as streaked lines. Then, in the background, you see these points of light and little blobs of light that appear sharp. They're not streaked, unlike the stars that are close by. So one of the members of Above Top Secret said, See, this is proof that there are rods in outer space. See, look at that. This image has Cassini sharp. It has the stars, quote-unquote, in the background being sharp. And look at these lines. These can't be stars. They're rods. Now, I then immediately pointed out, no, those are stars. Get a life. And Escamilla saw fit at this point to chime in and say, oh, David, you're misinterpreting the image. If you have things in the background that are sharp, how can you say that those streaks are stars? He said, I I don't know if they're rods, but they've got to be some sort of weird interstellar life that the camera has captured. Now, when he did this, pretty much that was the end of any credibility he might have claimed in the area specifically of image processing. And I was very quick to point out, Gene, that if you have a camera on a probe and you have long exposure times and it's locked onto a celestial object that you are tracking and shooting in focus, of course there are going to be objects that are far away that look completely sharp. Those little blobs of light are messier objects. They're galaxies. The little pinpoints of light that are far away that are still crisp, those are distant stars. They don't move as much as the stars that are in our galaxy when you have this kind of a photographic situation because they're so distant that they're essentially locked in place. And anybody who knows even the most basics of astronomy understands the idea of parallax. You take two photos at two different time points and two different vantage points in terms of distance and physical location. You take two photos of the same thing, of the same chunk of sky, and based on how much the stars move from photo to photo, you can determine parallax. You can essentially figure out where the stars are with relation to each other. The stars that are closer move more between the two subsequent exposures. The stars that are more distant move less, as you would expect in three-dimensional parallax. This, by the way, is the foundation of things like the stereoscopic photography. It's the foundation of the whole aspect of gauging the relative distance of stars and other celestial bodies. It's also the foundation, apparently, of creating fake, <laughs> fake impressions about 
weird things in the sky. I mean, there's enough weird stuff going on. Why do they have to fake things? That's what bothers me sometimes. Well, this is not a fake. Dim- you know, this is an image that is being the reason. Well, I, I understand it's being misinterpreted, but what I'm saying is why do they have to deal with stuff that is conventional, misinterpreted or faked, whatever, when there's so much real stuff going on? Well, sure. The, the bottom line is this. Escamilla went on record saying, oh, you don't understand what you're seeing. And by doing that, basically proved to everybody who read this thread on Above Top Secret that he has not a single clue of what the basics of imaging, photography, and certainly celestial photography are about. Why would people listen to this guy then if he claims to have these incredible videos of these unknown crypto-terrestrial entities? It's all nonsense. He has nothing. And this is what drives me crazy, Gene, because on Above Top Secret, you see people rising to his defense. And saying, well, he's uh, he's curious like the rest of us. He's trying to uh, find some answers. And, oh, by the way, the fact that he won't share anything without you paying money for his pay-per-view about his ridiculous UFO documentary. Um, or, you know, basically, go buy my DVDs and I explain everything to you in there. People saying, well, he has a right to make money. Which, of course, my response is, sure he does. But not by fabricating and hoaxing the audience. That is, well, I don't know what's the term, unethical. Well, that never stopped anybody. (laughs) I know. Just had to bring it up because it's the end of the year, and even though I should be feeling loving and kind to my fellow human, Escamilla is someone who I'd like to, well, you know, let's just say I'd like to see him go away from this field because he's the kind of person who discredits any realistic rational and coherent discussion about this topic and that just pisses me off end of soapbox or maybe there'll be another one in a moment coming up next in the powercast dr richard Sauter, who has investigated such things as underground bases possible sources for ufos or not coming up on the powercast i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore we have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene and Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, 
Marina del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, Hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five. And that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. With Jesus, I look at David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Richard. You got involved on, I guess we'd call it a lifelong journey, looking at the paranormal. So how did it begin? Where did it begin? I would say my uh, destiny, so to speak, was cast for me in, in infancy. Really, when I was three years old, uh, living in what was then a rural area of southeastern Virginia in the Tidewater region, one spring day, my mother had put my older brother, older by not quite a year and a half, and me out on our screened-in porch to play uh, while she occupied herself with household chores. And so we were playing, I don't know, the simple kind of thing that, that, that little preschool boys play, uh, just some little game we were, we were involved with. And I was kind of a sickly child when I was young. I had a lot of hospital visits and so forth. Um, I wasn't well. And so my mother frequently gave me a bowl of Cheerios to eat as a snack. A lot of foods didn't agree with me because I had digestive difficulties, but I did like to snack on Cheerios, and so she'd give me a bowl of them. And I, I liked to eat them with a crochet hook for whatever reason. I was, it was very um, Freudian or phallic, I suppose. I would take the crochet hook and I would individually spear each Cheerio. You know, if you stick the crochet hook right to the middle of that little O and you grab it with the crook uh, of the needle, and you can lift it up neatly into your mouth and eat them one at a time that way. And so I, I was fond of that. And I was eating the Cheerios. I remember that quite well. And I also remember that I had knocked over the bowl of Cheerios while playing with my brother, and, and the Cheerios had gotten scattered on the floor of the porch. So, of course, I had to corral the Cheerios and gather them back up, which I was proceeding to do one by one with a crochet hook and put them back in the bowl. Something caused me to look out of the screen and up towards the gutter, right along the eaves of, of the porch roof. And... um I'll never forget to this day what I saw up there, leaning over on the edge of the porch roof, which had a, uh, a gentle pitch, and staring at me was an entity or being, call her what you will, that I 
described as the bone lady. All three words capitalized. And um, I ended up telling my mother about her very shortly thereafter because she noticed me wandering around in the front yard. I had left the porch and was walking around in the yard in front of the house looking at the house roof and uh, rubbing my fingers together on both hands. Uh, somewhat, you know how yogis hold their fingers when they meditate on their knees? And I was doing that to my fingers and uh, walking around and muttering to myself. She, she went out to see what was wrong because I was just a little kid and she found my behavior peculiar. And so all I would tell her was, Mommy, Mommy, the bone lady was on the roof. Mommy, Mommy, the, the bone lady. Well, the bone lady had leaned over and peered at me through the screen and made the most powerful impression on me that anything has in my entire life up to this present day, and I've had a lot of powerful experiences. What I can remember at this distant remove of 49 years is that she made a, a very strong impression on me, that the gaze was so powerful it was like being sucked in into a, I don't know, a vast realm of awareness where I was given a lot of information which I don't anymore clearly remember. You have to understand I was three years old at the time. And um, what I would say at this point is it gave me at a certain basic level of understanding that there are vast intelligences out there, that um, I've always known that this lifetime for me in particular and for this period of time for the planet and the human race in general are extremely important and that big things uh, would be happening and certainly they are happening and I think even larger events are to come perhaps even very shortly in the future it gave me the sense that there um, that reality even at a very young age that reality isn't really what people think it is, that there's more to it, so to speak, than what you just see with your two eyes and hear with your ears and feel with your hands as you go through life. So those are some kinds of things I picked up on. I believe, I, I feel like I, I, so to speak, had information downloaded into a, a very essential level of my being, maybe at a, a soul level or at a genetic DNA level, something along those lines. And so that experience that day really uh, made such a strong impression on me and impacted me so strongly that it set me off on a lifelong search that has never ended. And I've had many more paranormal or unusual experiences down through the years, right up until this present year, which is my 52nd year. I might add also that as that experience took place, and I have reason to believe it lasted a few minutes uh, at the most, um, I noticed that my brother was frozen. I couldn't get him to move. I, I, I remember shaking him and pulling at his arm and trying to get him also to look at the bone lady. Um, I was very animated, and I was upset and disappointed that he couldn't share in this observation and experience with me. But um, he sat there fixed, immobile, uh, rigid, unblinking, uh, non-responsive to me. And you know that um, oftentimes people who've had experiences with UFOs have remarked upon this, that sometimes other people in their party 
have been frozen in just this manner and were unresponsive and uncommunicative while they themselves sometimes have had uh, very um, dramatic experiences. So that in a nutshell is what set me off on this lifelong quest. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, okay, Richard, let, let me go ahead and ask a question that a lot of people are probably thinking about, which is you're three years old, you have an experience like this, is there a danger that you're reading more into it than was was actually there? And the reason I'm asking this is that I share with you this situation where at an early age I had experiences that I now question. And I've talked about a bunch of my stuff on the show, Richard, but there's some yeah. stuff I have talked about because at you know, if you go back to when you're three, four, five years old, you start to think, all right, look, at that point my perception of the world is not fully formed. Even the, so much the, the better, in fact, that it's not fully formed, because you, you, you may, in fact, be a more objective observer of certain aspects of reality at the age of three than you are at the age of 53, for example, in the case of the ordinary person, because our reality is so heavily propagandized, it is so strongly culturally determined. I'll give you an example. I was talking with a woman. Uh, discussing with her the windows on her home and uh, she had informed me over the telephone that none of the windows on her house had screens I arrived at her house to find out to find that every one of the windows on her house save three had screens in other words 26 of the windows on this woman's house had screens whereas she had informed me an adult woman woman that the windows on her house had no screens objectively she was not perceiving reality on her own home as it concretely is do you follow the point sure was it the definition of screen or did she really just not even realize that those they were not there to her she thought indeed was persuaded that there were no screens on the windows on her home hmm. until I arrived and pointed them out to her and she said well I'm so embarrassed do you know I do have windows on my screens and I've been living here and I, ne I never saw them I never noticed them and so the point I'm making is a three-year-old in fact may have more accurate perceptions than someone who's, in this case, an adult woman in her 50s. Well, is it a case there of people, when they get older, they're so wrapped up with their day-to-day -day living and their struggle to survive that they stop noticing things around them? Shut down their perceptions. It's as if they have blinders on them. In the days of horses and buggies, you would put blinders on a horse's eyes so they could only see straight ahead and wouldn't notice per peripheral activity that might spook them. And in, in many ways, we're like this. Our blinders are religion, politics, the economy, other people's social expectations, family pressures to conform, groupthink. Uh, those types of things are our blinders, and they are very powerful and formidable blinders. And they mold our perceptions, they limit our perceptions, they channel our perceptions, and in effect, uh, they partially blind us, and in many cases, they grievously blind us. To all kinds of things. Well, certainly, if we, you know, we're, we're on a show like the Paracast talking about topics that, for most people, don't impact their day-to-day -day lives, where we're talking about things that uh, the average person would look at and go, how does this affect the quality of my family life? How does this affect my ability to, to provide for my family? 
And uh, and here, Richard, is, is another way I think you and I have something in common in that I don't have a family. It's just me. And I'm not worried about my kids because I don't have any. You know, basically what, what I do in my life, I'm the only one who really is sort of the victim in the end of whatever actions I take that are productive or destructive. And so, but that's something that, you know, in Gene's case, for example, he's got a son, he's got a wife. So there are people who are relying on him. And I think for, for most people, if you ask, stop and ask them, what are their concerns? Yeah, these topics tend to fall pretty low on the priority list, unless, of course, you're asking people who have been personally touched by this stuff. If you've had experiences, then your level of interest in all of this is is, is very, very different. And you know, that, of course, brings us to the to the next sort of topic I'd like to talk about with you, which is, um, and I guess let's just take the meta view before we get down into the nitty gritty. In your work, you've uncovered. A lot of money that's gone that's gone missing, basically. Yeah. In, in our budget, and you have some thoughts about where this money is going. Um, yes, I do, and I might say uh, before we segue into that that um, you know uh, the amount of money that's involved is, is large. It runs well into the trillions. No one knows how many trillions are involved, but it is a certainty, a documented certainty, that there are, are multiple trillions involved, at least a few trillions and perhaps a great many more. So basically um, we can't worry about feeding the poor and the hungry. We can't worry about having enough money to give everybody complimentary medical care because we're just wasting it. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. That's one small step to climate 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, Dr. Richard Sauter joins us this week. And the focus, of course, he's written a number of books on underground alien bases and covered the paranormal as a lifetime pursuit. Okay, so we have trillions of dollars not being accounted for. How did you discover this and where is it going? Well, you know, I first noticed this just by reading the mainstream news media. It was, it's been a, 
a number of years back, and I noticed the day before the 9-11 attacks, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, this was would have been uh, like September 10th in 2001, Donald Rumsfeld, who was then Secretary of the Department of Defense for the United States government, had made some remarks to the press in which he rather offhanded referred to a figure of in excess of $2 trillion in budgetary expenses that the Pentagon could not account for, they could not track. And I remember then thinking, uh, I think this news item was carried by CNN or Reuters, one of the major news gathering organizations. And uh, I actually printed out the story from my own files. But I, I remember thinking then, that day when I, when I noticed it. My God, this guy just says, oh, and oh, by the way, we've got more than $2 trillion. We don't know where it is. We don't know what it's been spent on. We don't know who, who has it or what's been done with it. But uh, yeah, there it is. So that's just the way things are. And I, I remember thinking, that's mind-boggling. That is a vast astronomical sum of money. You would think it would be a pressing priority to uh, get on that right away, number one, and number two, to ensure that it could never happen again and um, institute some kind of disciplinary procedure for, for the people who misallocated the money. It was just mind-boggling to me that, that that could happen. And then, of course, the next day, all hell break loose, broke loose with the 9-11 uh, attacks, and this story got totally snowed under and buried in the news cycle. Now, it never resurfaced to any meaningful extent in the mainstream news media, but in the ensuing years, in the subsequent years, it, the situation has not gotten any better. There, there's more evidence that still more money has gone missing. One of the people who has done some good work on this is Catherine Austin Fitz at Solari.com, and, and she was, some years ago, when, when during the first Bush administration, the Undersecretary for Housing and Urban Development, and she came to that position from Wall Street where she was a, a banker, and before that uh, she was at the Wharton School of Business and, and other mainstream institutions where she earned advanced degrees. But she's uh, done some excellent research on that in recent years and found out that it's far more than 2.1 or 2.3 trillion dollars that have gone missing. I mean, just a great deal more. A minimum of more than 3 trillion dollars and maybe even more than that. It's very hard to find out for sure. But it, it extends beyond the Defense Department, although, although the missing money in the Defense Department is truly a very, very large sum. Now, there's no question this money is going somewhere and a whole flood of it. Richard, Where is it? just a quick question for clarification. Yes. Over what time period are we talking about this money having gone missing? That, that's hard to say, too, because the accounting is so criminal. It's so opaque. It's so circuitous. There's so much deception. And, and it's, can you even call this grand larceny? I think you have to call this a, a wholesale looting of the national treasury. The time period, I don't know. It may have been going on for decades or maybe virtually for the last century. It's... It's really hard to know, but these numbers that they're talking about now seem to have taken place place more or less over the last 10 years. But then again, who really knows? It's become clear to me and I think to others who have seriously looked at this that you now have to treat the published uh, budgetary documents and information that come out from the federal agencies in, in the United States government as fiction. 
because the numbers simply can't be believed anymore. We're living in la-la land. We're dealing with organized crime on a grand scale. You get down to the nitty-gritty and you realize that in, in a lot of respects, you could describe uh, certain activities of the United States government as organized crime, similar to what any other large criminal syndicate would in, engage in, only using uh, having access to considerably more and more powerful and sophisticated resources. Um, now, where is this money going? My research indicates at least three areas, and there may be others, but these three I would surmise for certain. Number one, certainly into clandestine underground and also undersea excavations and facilities. Number two, probably into exotic technologies, including UFO-like technologies, not excluding others, but certainly including them. And number three, which perhaps could be a follow-on to number two, probably, and I would give this certainly a, a probability about 50%, and probably way above 50%, one or more parallel secret space programs uh, above and beyond what we see with NASA, for example. Well, here's the thing. Okay, let's just talk about that third point for a minute. Yes. How do you keep an entire space program secret? Don't you have launches of vehicles that would be so obvious? You know, if you have a Saturn-style rocket going up, that's well, not a uh, well, thing. well, you have to realize there are at least four well-known, or at least relatively well-known, spaceports that the uh, that NASA and the military-industrial com complex have and use all the time. Of course, there's the facility in Florida at Cape Canaveral. Right. There's the facility at Wallops Island on the uh, Virginia coastline. There is the facility at the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. There's the facility at Vandenberg in California, Vandenberg Air Force Base. There's also the facility at Kwajalein Atoll out in the mid-Pacific, uh, where there are also launches of uh, rockets and missiles. And I hear dark murmurings of launches at Diego Garcia, which is in the middle of the Indian Ocean, um, technically owned by Britain, but in, for all uh, practical purposes is a military fiefdom, a high-tech military fiefdom uh, of the United States. Those are known facilities, and uh, five of those six are locations where it is known that the military uh, put up launch rockets and missiles. And how would you hide things? Uh, and there may be others that we don't know about. Area 51, for example, is not a known uh, spaceport in the sense of launching rockets and missiles, but they sure can fly high-performance aircraft out of there, such as the SR-71 and others, uh, which remain uh, classified and unknown, but still some of which have been observed. And they they may or may not have uh, an orbital capability, I don't know. But which, the point I'm making is there are many facilities that can be used, and if something goes out of Vandenberg and at 2 a.m. in the morning, and they launch Titan IVs out of Vandenberg, and by the way, the Titan IV can and does launch payloads just as heavy as those of the space shuttle, and they go up all the time, usually shrouded. So no one knows what's inside them other than, the, you know, the launch crews at Vandenberg. 
So does this then play into the idea, and we've heard about some of the versions of this that really truly are outrageous, where we, we hear about things like, oh, secret bases on the dark side of the moon, which to me personally, can, can I say that any of us knows exactly what's on the surface of the moon? I'd say, mm, no, unless you've been there, you probably don't know. That Even said, if you've been there, you may not know. Well, okay, I'll give you that. But do you seriously think there's a possibility? Maybe I should let me reword that. Do you think there's a probability that we have some base on the moon that is not known to the rest? Yeah, of us? I don't. I don't know about that. Um, anything I would say would be speculation. Um, right. Uh, and I would say you referred earlier, uh, just a, you know, a minute ago, to the dark side of the moon. In fact, there is no so-called dark side of the moon. There is a near and far side of the moon. Um, the near side always faces us. Far side is always facing away. But when we have the new moon and it appears to have gone away and, and the face toward us is dark, the back side is sunlit and vice versa. When right. we have a full moon, uh, the, the far side of the moon is is dark. So the back side goes to the same cycles as the side facing us. It's alternately dark and light, depending on the phase of the moon. But as to whether the United States and perhaps others have secret, uh, a secret moon base or moon bases, I don't know. I will say I don't rule that out. It is now clear to me, and I've discussed this issue personally with Catherine Austin Fitz. I asked her, okay, we know there is a vast black hole in our economy, in our national life, and it is sucking in trillions, trillions of dollars in real time, in our lifetime, in the here and now. It is not discussed whatsoever in the mainstream news media. It is not discussed whatsoever by leading political figures in the government. It is the great multi-trillion dollar gorilla sitting in our national living room, and it is not a topic of national conversation to any meaningful extent. Therefore, where is all of this going? What is being done with it? And Catherine Austin Fitz said, you know, I don't really know, but you can do anything with that amount of money. There are no limits. Yeah, when you're talking trillions of dollars. Uh, there are no limits. Yeah. Well, you can certainly balance the budget, but then who cares about balancing budgets anyway? Well, clearly not the American government. <laughs> right. But, now, that's a good question, too, and I want to ask this, and I know David wants to get in his part, but that is, okay, who knows about this? The Department of Defense, the president, how far does it go, or is there a secret agency funneling all this money to these various projects? I would guess there would be more than one secret agency. There would be certainly uh, some senior members of Congress. Uh, your average congressman is dumber than a post. Let's tell the truth. <laughs> I mean, Mark Twain had a, had a great one-liner uh, one or two-liner about congressmen and remember he was in his heyday a century ago but he observed then a hundred years ago he said suppose i were a congressman and suppose i were an idiot but i repeat myself <laughs> so you have to understand the average person in congress is not too bright they have overweening ambition and a sense of entitlement and a greed for power and influence and money. But many of them are really not very bright. 
and not very curious from an intellectual standpoint. They don't really want to know how things work. They're Nancy Pelosi-style creatures or Rudy Giuliani-style creatures. As long as they have the limo and a big desk with a brass brass nameplate and a a big corner office and a couple of secretaries that jump whenever they snap their fingers, they're happy. They've arrived. They're numero uno. They're on top of the pecking order. That's how shallow and superficial they are. And most of them are like that. But some of the ones who are in the loop on the intelligence committees and uh, budget committees and so forth would probably have at least some knowledge or awareness that, hey, you know, there's trillions of dollars going bye-bye. And we're just not getting accounting for that. So some of them certainly would know. They may or may not know where some of that money is going. They certainly would not know where all of it is going. They may or may not know where at least some of it is going. And in terms of the president, not all presidents are created the same. Some of them are really almost cartoonish buffoons, you know, like George Bush, who really is not the sharpest tack in the pack. So he may know a little bit about some secret programs. His handlers that are more in the know may tell him a little bit just to satisfy his idle curiosity, assuming he even has any idle curiosity about these things. But he's an elected official, so I think the idea is that... No, no, I, I let me correct you. I believe there's good evidence that he is not an elected official, rather an appointed official. You know what, I'm not going to debate that with you, because I actually believe the same thing. I guess the point I'm making is that he's in, then he's out. He's not, for example, he's not a J. Edgar Hoover. Who no, he's not. He arguably, you know, you talk about Hoover, you're talking about the most powerful person in American politics in the 20th century, in, in my opinion. I, I think that if anybody had a real handle on where money was vanishing into or, for example, on whether or not there was non-human technologies recovered from crash sites, yeah. I have to guess that this is a guy who probably actually knew. Well, not, he, he, knew, he knew quite a lot. He ran the largest domestic intelligence operation in the country. It was under his thumb for decades. So he certainly knew a lot about a lot of things and a lot about a lot of people. And he may not have been the biggest fish in the pond, but he was one of the bigger fish, that's for certain. All right. So we have this huge amount of money. Yes. That's That's gone missing. Yes. What has it been used for, in your opinion? Well, I just told you three things, three of the things I think it's probably been used for. And I'm suspecting, in other words, that there are very large events in motion that are very carefully and great care and no no expense is spared. Uh, No effort is, uh, there's an, you know, unending effort to keep this from coming into larger public awareness, mainly by, through ignorance and stealth. How do you hide a multi-trillion dollar theft? Let me ask you, how do you do that? You know, I'll repeat a line from a movie. <laughs> David's going to really go after me after this, but in go the ahead. movie Independence Day, Judd Hirsch, playing yeah. the father of the Jeff Goldblum character, says, someone asks, how do they find the money for this? And he says, you don't think they spend $700 on a toilet bowl or a wrench, do you? For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-7888. 
1-800-273-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. Or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Yeah. Dr. Richard Sauter joins us. We're talking about his lifelong experiences studying the paranormal. But right now we're talking about government secrecy, government conspiracies, and about taking trillions of dollars of your money, ladies and gentlemen, and secreting away this money to do various things with it. Go ahead. Yeah, well, my research indicates quite clearly that there are and have been for decades extensive plans and operations for all manner of deeply buried underground tunnels and facilities, bases, installations, whatever you want to call them, by a variety of governmental and non-governmental agencies and organizations. And when I really got into this after a few years, I started to realize there's quite a lot going on under sea as well. Um, I might add, it's, it, this is difficult uh, stuff to research because it's so compartmentalized and evidence for it, for it is scattered all over the place. You really have to be interdisciplinary. You, you, you can't, you've got to think out of the box, in other words. And you have to look at budget data. You have to find, follow the money trail wherever you can through, you know, the documentation that come out of government agencies at various levels, whether military or non-military, from corporations. You have to read uh, general literature that you'd find in, you know, popular magazines and newspapers and also in general interest books as well as technical literature that comes, you know, in mining journals or engineering journals or scientific publications. And you have to talk to people and also um, sift through government documentation from many different agencies and organizations and also from quasi-governmental institutions and think tanks and study groups and and that type of thing. And before you know it, you've gone through you know tens of thousands of pages of information, if not more, and it's it's mind-boggling the amount of paper that's out there. We live in a system that's really, even though we have computers now and, and digital technology, it's it's still a paper world, and there's still all kinds of paper being produced of every description, and you just go around and, and try to sift through the evidence and see what's there, and as you do, you run across people, you talk to people, people contact you, uh, you do interviews like this one. I mean, I've been interviewed many times, and then people will call you or forward you letters or emails or send uh, more yet more information or, or give a lead or something like that. And a picture uh, comes into focus as time goes by. So it's clear for me now, and I, I believe I've communicated that adequ- adequately, and many um, articles, interviews, and the three books I've written 
over the past uh, 12 years now that there is a lot underground. I don't anymore know how many people are underground on any given day. Of course, we have many open civil engineering or industrial projects. To give one example, subway systems. I mean, right now, how many people are, are underground around the planet riding on mass transit systems and, and tunnels in, in the world's metropolitan areas? I don't know how many, 100,000 as we speak, maybe? Probably just in New York City you got that, at least that, if not more. Yeah, so on any given day, millions, I don't know how many millions, but certainly millions of people go underground every day for all kinds of purposes. Sure. And nobody questions that. That's the first yeah. level of underground activity. You have people in the subway, people who work in the sewers, building sewers, maintaining sewers, or aqueduct tunnels and pipes. You have miners, how many thousands of miners? There may be a 100,000 people or more right now underground in the world's coal mines and gold mines and lead mines and zinc mines and iron mines and diamond mines and on and on, copper mines, etc. A hundred thousand, maybe a million, I don't know. There are a lot of mines and some some of them are huge on any given day and some of the larger mines you may have a thousand men and women or more underground and just one mine. So that's the that's the first level, the open level. But then you have government and, and military underground installations. We know about some of the more famous ones, like uh, say Mount Weather in Northern Virginia. That's been written about a lot in the mainstream news media in, in over the last 10, 10 or 15 years. You have others such as Site R, Raven Rock, up on the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania. That's run by the Pentagon. And it's sometimes referred to as an alternate underground control center for the Pentagon. You have others like the one that NORAD has run for many years under Cheyenne Mountain out in the Rockies in Colorado. And so you have these types of facilities. Some of them are quite known and very elaborate. But then there are others that aren't so publicly known. And let me put it this way. One of the people who contacted me over the years has spent his career working in underground facilities, some of which he named for me and others of which he didn't. But he told me, uh, he said, there are, there are numerous underground bases. And here he's speaking of the military-industrial espionage complex bases here in the United States. There are numerous underground bases and there are thousands of people working in them. So I can't tell you the total number of people working underground. It's a very large number and even in the case of the clandestine facilities. I'm now prepared to believe it's very large. It certainly runs into the thousands of people, but how many thousands? 10,000, 100,000, 200,000 more? I don't know. And it's virtually impossible to find out because because this world is so highly compartmentalized and so secretive. And, but what I can tell you is, on the basis of my research, we are very much a society divided against itself. And we have people who, because of security clearances and uh, security oaths that they have taken that have sworn them to secrecy, we have people going off to work in the morning, and the spouse has not the faintest clue what they're doing. The spouse thinks, my husband is, uh, you know, an accountant for the Commerce Department. Yes, at one level, but another, at another level. And I mean maybe even physically at another level, the husband may, may be oh so much more. 
he may indeed go away to government office building and punch a time clock or its equivalent, but whether or not he's actually sitting at a desk all day long, you know, on the 34th floor or something like that is another question. Maybe he's on the 34th floor, but going in the other direction. But let me ask well, you, you here. Of- yeah, but let me ask you something here. All this stuff going on, why aren't investigative reporters discovering even an inkling of it? Why is it restricted to just a few of us crazies who go on the radio or write books? Because the mainstream news media are bought and sold. What we have now is a corporate news media. The major news gathering organizations are run by large corporations. In fact, they are corporate empires. And there are very few, truly very few, uh, investigative reporters even inclined to pursue this kind of thing. But beyond that, if, if you are an investigative reporter and you, you start to follow your own, own nose and your own head, you won't last long. Reporters have editors, and editors tell them what to do, uh, which stories to pursue, which to drop. Editors, moreover, once they're given copy, can slash out entire sentences, entire paragraphs, or kill entire stories. And above editors, you have managing editors and the boards of corporations and so forth. In other words, the news flow is very heavily censored and edited and controlled. And that nutshell is why these types of things are not being explored. That's why you can have trillions of dollars go missing. And CNN and Fox and ABC aren't all over that story. In fact, they're ignoring it almost totally, when in fact it's the crime of the century, perhaps even the crime of the millennium in terms of financial crimes. It's way up, you know, the meter pegs on that type of, on that scale of crime. Mm-hmm. It's a multi-trillion dollar heist, and no one's investigating it. Well, they're now, not taking this you go on, you, you go and you, you go and stick a, a gun in someone's face. I'm not recommending you do this, but if you did stick a gun in someone's face and lift $20 from them, your face would be all over the news for the next hour in whatever town you live in. But if you steal $3 trillion, there won't even be a murmur. Okay, so now we have all these people who are doing this clandestine work, all right? and they're using the trillions of dollars. Why are they going underground? What's happening down there? Well, you see, that's very hard to find out as well. I can tell you some of the things that are publicly known. There are um, data storage facilities underground. Industry uses them. Financial services sector uses underground data storage, not only for digital storage media, but also for um, paper storage because you can climb control those types of facilities, and you you can also control access, access, and information is power. So if you have sensitive data, you certainly want to control who accesses it or on what terms. So storing it underground gives you an extra layer of physical security, and also uh, two levels of physical security, both to uh, prevent unwanted access and intrusion, but also to prevent the intrusion of elements such as humidity and heat. If you're underground, you can climate control much, much better. Um, so that's one thing going uh, taking place underground. You know, so on the military side, of course, there are so-called C3 facilities, uh, command, control, and communications facilities. Um, and the, the NORAD Cheyenne Mountain uh, facility would be one such. The FEMA facility would be uh, fit in that category. Also, the Raven Rock facility at Site R up on the border between Maryland and Pennsylvania. So you have that going on. Weapon storage takes place underground as well. 
There are a number of these. Uh, Air Force Base has an underground uh, storage facility for for uh, nuclear weapons, and and there are some others. Nuclear weapons are stored underground at the uh, Cheatham Naval Annex at the Yorktown Naval Station in Virginia, and so there are a number of places where weapons are stored underground. Nuclear waste stored underground, deeply underground in New Mexico, for example, there's a new facility that's either been recently opened or soon will in Nevada at Yucca Mountain. So that's another thing that take, takes place underground. You also have certain types of uh, sensitive scientific research that takes place underground. Examples, some, some of the examples are high energy uh, physics, particle physics takes place underground. CERN, for example, in Europe has their super collider underground. I think that's right on the border between France and Switzerland. Uh, you have uh, there's certain deep mines, for example, where uh, physicists will set up elaborate instrumentation for neutrino detection and that kind of thing. Right, so, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, the uh, the very deep underground water tanks that are used. Oh yeah, um, there's, there are a number of examples of this. Yeah. And then you also have out at Area 51 quite a lot of things, research and engineering activities take place underground to keep away from the prying eyes of of spy satellites passing overhead. And uh, from descriptions I've read and and also verbally heard of what's underground at Area 51, it's truly very expensive, very large underground workings there. Um, and then you have other examples such as the Lockheed facility in, near Hallandale, California, where they have sophisticated uh, underground scientific and engineering laboratories along with tall pylons that they raise up from underground on huge hydraulic uh, lifts to with whatever uh, technology affixed on top that they would like to, to test, for example, for stealth characteristics in the instance of cutting-edge aerospace technology for the military-industrial complex. And so those are some of the ideas, some of the examples of what you can find out about what's going on under, on underground from publicly available sources. I presume, I know all of that is going on, but I presume that much more besides that's more secretive is going on underground. The deep rumbles that you will hear, and to which I attach some credence, by the way, are that there is secretive genetic engineering going on underground and also cutting-edge research into UFO types of technologies. Um, okay. Now, now we're going to be breaking in a moment for our hourly break, and David's going to want to ask you, based on that, something about that. So let me just tell our listeners on the Paracast, we're presenting Dr. Richard Sauter, who's written some books about underground bases, secret government bases, alien bases, some kind of cooperation between us and the aliens. We'll find out more on part two of the Paracast. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes... 
The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. A novel in the grand science fiction tradition. We want to hear from you. If you comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Our rather interesting guest today, Dr. Richard Souter, who's talking to us about underground bases. Now I think it's time that we take this right to the place of high strangeness. Because, Richard, I know that I've watched online on Google Video. There was a presentation, I believe, that you uh, had done at the X Conference in 2004. It was uh, very informative. There were some things about it that I found most fascinating, which we're going to talk about during this hour. But let's cut right to the high weirdness factor, because in your presentation, you alluded to the idea that there are certainly all types of research projects going on underground. And, and just as an aside for those people who might have a problem with that, go and research the sale of decommissioned missile bases and missile silos. And you'll find that in the case of what you brought up, Richard, where you talked about corporations using underground facilities for data storage, a number of these decommissioned missile silos have indeed been sold to the corporations that have turned these things into underground storage facilities. And if we look at an underground Atlas missile silo, we find that typically there are miles of tunnels in one of those things. And these were from back in the 60s. So or even 50s. Or even 50. So as far as the idea that these things are or not possible, they're clearly possible technologically. And if one extrapolates from what we saw built in the 50s and 60s, we have to believe that today, uh, given where our technology has gotten to, perhaps we can't even imagine uh, what yeah, some of these things so. are. And I, and I give examples in my books, of course, and show some of the machinery uh, that is in use uh, for under, underground excavation in our time. And the uninitiated frequently don't understand how large and how powerful and how sophisticated this machinery can be. It's mind-boggling. So I no longer have any illusions. And people have to understand that once you go and comb through, assiduously comb through the hard engineering and scientific and governmental and industrial literature, mm -hmm related to underground excavation that you will come to understand indeed it is possible to make large tunnels and facilities even miles underground. I mean, I've seen references in some of the reports and, and documentation I've looked at where they're talking about going not just one mile down or two miles down, but down as far as three miles. And that's in the open literature. Maybe the capability is there to go even farther and to do even more. I don't know what's going on in the, in, in the black realm. I, I rely on what I read in the open literature. But already what you see in the open literature is very eye-opening. And you can certainly extrapolate from that. But let's take this to that weird place because 
one of the things I saw in your presentation was uh, the inference that there's some possibility, in your opinion, that there could be some joint human and non-human activity happening. Now, yeah, I think it's possible that those stories and rumors have been around for a number of years now. Right. I first heard them back in the late 1980s, and I didn't know what to make of it then. I, I, I've never summarily dismissed the idea because I understand and have from, from early childhood, um, as I explained at the outset of the broadcast, that things can often be far different than, than you assume them to be just looking at them on the surface. I've always known that, grasped that intuitively. Um, not everyone does, so they're easily bamboozled or flummoxed or have a wool pulled over their eyes, but I understand that. And so I don't assume just because something may appear um, unusual that it is therefore un impossible or cannot be. Now, when I heard these stories, I thought, you know, that's unusual. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's false. But supposing it is true, there must be some evidence for that. And so in part, my research has, has involved trying to find some evidence to support that. I haven't yet found any conclusive proof. However, I have not found anything that conclusively disproves it either. On the contrary, the more I learn, uh, the more I'm inclined to think, yeah, there could be something to that. Well, that brings up a few different interesting points, Richard. This goes to the meta topic that uh, I'm personally really deeply fascinated by, and, and this is something we've been exploring more and more on the show, is expanding the discussion when we specifically talk about UFOs and the quote-unquote extraterrestrial phenomenon. What we've been talking about on the show, and, and more and more we've been delving into this, and I suspect this is going to define part of the future of this show, is that we're trying to open our minds up to the point where we can say, all right, what do we know is really going on versus what do we know is not going on? You know, let's, let's try to eliminate the items on the list that we know for sure are probably not likely, and this will move us closer to an actual understanding. Uh, when, we, when we hear about the talk of the UFO phenomenon and have it tied to the notion of extraterrestrials, that these things are, are coming from far away, we've certainly engaged in this show in the discussion that maybe this is more complex than it appears from the outside. And maybe what we're dealing with, and, and our friend Mac Tonys has come on the show to discuss it, maybe we're talking about, when we talk about these quote-unquote aliens, a, uh, a race that is perhaps not as extraterrestrial as we'd like to think. And when people specifically bring up the prototypical grays, it was my girlfriend that pointed out to me that, hey, you know, you've got these little creatures that have got gray skin and big black eyes. That would sort of make sense for an underground being that did not re receive much light and that needed to have a good amount of visual acuity to deal with darkness. Yes. I, I found that very interesting. Now, the other thing that in your presentation you, you talk about, and most people are not aware of this, is the potential of using geothermal energy yes. to power an underground base. Now, people don't necessarily, I mean, people think of geothermal energy, that maybe they think of Yellowstone and, you know, Old Faithful. What they don't yeah. realize is that the amount of heat being generated, you don't even have to go that far down to get the benefits of this. Most people would do some research and find that in Iceland, a vast number of homes and businesses use geothermal energy as their primary heat source. Yes. But people are not aware of this. Um, if you went down a mile or two miles or three miles, which, by the way, let's put some context around this. In terms of the depth of the Earth's crust, 
three miles or five miles is nothing. You know, you're not talking about very deep penetration. And one of the things that I think people need to understand is that we probably know more about our solar system than we know about what lays 10 miles down in our own planet. We have not really penetrated very deeply no. in, into this planet at all. And, and again, this is where no. people think that, well, even when we're talking about these deep drilling devices that, that you bring up, uh, people think, well, gee, this, this could go down like that ridiculous, incredibly stupid movie called The Core, which is one of Gene's favorite movies, so I bring it up with some trepidation. Of course, um, between that and Plan 9 from Outer Space, I am in heaven. Well, but the, like the core postulates, oh, look, there's this craft that can go down to the, to the central core of the planet. It's like, mm, no, we're more likely to be able to, you know, ride a Twinkie to Pluto than to get down to the core of this planet just because of the fact that the densities and the pressures at, at those depths make the bottom of the ocean look like a game. So, At least that's the assumption. The reality is, as was pointed out to me by one of the PhD-level scientists I spoke with about, about precisely that question, and he pointed out to me in reality, you have models and theories that geologists and geophysicists and, and planetary scientists or scientists rely on uh, when they're discussing what's going on in the core, but at the end of the day, none of them know what's there. No one knows. No one knows with any degree of certainty. No so, one knows. Given all of that, what do you personally feel is the potential of, and I'll, I'm going to draw two parts to this, A, there being collaborative bases where, when I say collaborative, I say that loosely because ultimately my intuition is that if it came down to whatever these creatures are working with humans, that the humans would not be on an even standing with these creatures i mean that's just my intuition that you know based on what we've seen in certainly the popular abduction literature it doesn't seem like humans have a lot of control over these situations ultimately and b does that then explain richard the one thing that i think we all feel that richard dolan has definitively established with his research work and that richard doesn't proclaim to understand where these things are from or what they're doing here but what he establishes with i believe an absolute degree of certainty is that there is demonstrable and consistent proof that the military is indeed engaged in a massive cover-up of whatever is actually going on with these entities these craft and the species and and let's just assume for a moment it's one species it's probably something more complex than that but Clearly, the military has some highly elaborate and highly organized level of secrecy about this. So do these things, in your opinion, take us to that dark place where perhaps what we believe to be our real history on this planet and certainly our real level of power on this planet, are these things part of the consensual hallucination? I think so. I, I think there's a, a, a lot of truth in the movie. Uh, the underlying premise of the movie The Matrix, the fundamental point of which is that you think you, you think you understand reality, you think you really know what's going on because you're plugged in. Well, you're plugged in, all right, but not in the way that you think. And what you think of as reality is nothing but a group hallucination, very carefully put in place to ensure your lifelong enslavement. You don't even know your masters. It was put a little differently by by the the famous uh, collector of, of anomalies, the, the well-known anomalist Charles Fort, 
who wrote a number of excellent books, and I recommend his books to anyone. But Charles Fort famously observed that, you know, after you sift through all the evidence and look at all of this weird stuff, it appears that we are, we being the human race, we are someone else's property. Oh, yes, we are property. I remember that very well, yes. And that may be the case. Um, and how better... And I think it was, was it Goethe who, who, who observed that there's no man more securely enslaved than, than, than the one who falsely imagines himself to be free? <laughs> oh, well, boy. Those, those, well, the, but those map really well into the current situation. If you look at the seemingly irrational behavior of our leaders, and it really, uh, if you stand back and you look at it with any amount of objectivity, you come to the conclusion that either they're all on the take in a way that dwarfs anything we've ever known. They're all completely out of, out of three trillion dollars. Yeah, that's pretty pretty nice chunk of change. Either that, or they're all completely, absolutely crazy as hell, or they're not actually in control of their own thoughts. Those aren't mutually exclusive possibilities. Hey, you know what? You just raised a cliffhanger. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception, day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash crane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash crane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the podcast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Dr. Richard Sauter joins us. Before you go into that cliffhanger, Richard, tell us about the books where we can get copies. My books are available from Amazon.com and also through Interlibrary Loan and used booksellers. They're out of print uh, at the moment. I may uh, reprint them in the future if, if I get the urge. My first book is Underground Bases and Tunnels, subtitled, What is the Government Trying to Hide? 
and uh, by Richard Souter. That's last name is spelled capital S as in Sam, A-U-D-E-R. My second book is Kundalini Tales. Kundalini is spelled capital K-U-N-D-A-L-I-N-I. Tales, capital T-A-L-E-S, so Kundalini Tales. And my third book is entitled Underwater and Underground Bases. And you can get these from Amazon.com or from, if you're in the United States or even in other countries around the world, you can get them through Interlibrary Loan. There are many libraries in the United States and a few in other places outside of the United States that have the books and you can obtain them that way. So you will find a lot of fascinating information in the books along with many illustrations. If you find these topics interesting or puzzling or bizarre or they just arouse your curiosity and you would like to learn more, you can indeed expand your mental horizons by using the pages of my books. So here's the thing, Richard. Let's Let's play this game for a moment. Let's assume that Long-time listeners of the program will think, well, Biedney's even starting to lose his mind a little bit. As I, as I don't I, want to say starting with a question mark. I, all right, yeah, no. I'm deeply in, enmeshed in the process thereof. But if you were programming the population at large, if you were, let's say you had some kind of electronic transmission device that tapped into humans' optic nerves that placed a level of subliminal programming perhaps hidden in the um, blanking region of the transmissions. Oh, no, wait a minute. That device wouldn't be fiction. That's called <laughs> television. So let's say that you could indeed program an entire planet and uh, essentially, oh, I don't know, hypnotize them. Why would you need to put bases underground? Couldn't you just put them above ground and program people to not notice them? I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Well, I, I don't think those possibilities are mutually exclusive either. I think both and. It may be, first of all, I, I agree with Richard Dolan. While I have not written the book that he's written, I've certainly done a very lot of read, a, a huge amount of reading on the topic over the years. And I concur with his assessment that indeed um, there is a massive cover up. Right. Uh, it's ongoing for at least decades, if not much longer. And uh, it's for certain that the American military is heavily involved with and one of the major promoters of this cover-up on planet Earth. They are in it up to their eyeballs. Right. So there's no doubt about that in my mind whatsoever. I also am inclined to the view that there probably are, to some degree, cooperative endeavors underground, but also above ground between certain factions, secretive factions of the American military-industrial espionage complex and also um, so-called alien groupings who may or may not be extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. And what the nature of such interactions might be and what the objectives might be, I don't know. It is all very strange. And the deeper you get into this literature and into the accounts that people who purport to be involved, either be involved in these projects or to ha have been swept up in them in one guise or another, the stories they tell can be so bizarre and so mind-bending that it's hard to find the signal and the noise. It's hard to know what's going on. And I don't claim to know other than it's clear to me that something is going on, that it is passing strange, that it is very highly secretive, that it is evidently very massively funded, 
and that it is kept back from close public scrutiny very systematically and very carefully. So in your professional and personal opinion, and maybe those are two different things in this realm, but without sounding oh, too crazy, because, and again, when you start to get into the deeper aspects of the high weirdness factor of this whole phenomenon, you start to come to some places that are that are very uncomfortable. And it's pretty clear that this, in even in the quote-unquote field of ufology, Getting into this high weirdness discussion is something that even the most sober researchers will not do. They won't go to that place, that place where all of a sudden you realize that maybe everything you suspected about this is completely wrong. And by the way, nobody wants to be in that place because it's very unsettling. It's very uncomfortable. It's the exact opposite of any level of security. You know, you know, Terrence McKenna had a had an interesting observation about just that. You perhaps are familiar with him and his work. Yeah. But Terrence observed that uh, not only are things stranger than you believe they are, they are stranger than you can believe. Right. Now, I, and I want to qualify this because um, I had read quite a bit of McKenna's work. But I've also read some of Timothy Leary's work, and I have much more respect for McKenna than Leary. And I've made enemies saying this. I think Leary was a stone fool. I do not respect his work. I believe that he took the idea of expanded consciousness and made a mockery of it. And I saw him speak publicly one time when I used to work at Industrial Light and Magic. He came and did a lunchtime talk. I walked in a fan, and I walked out absolutely hating the man. Now, McKenna, I think, was ultimately a better researcher and a more sober thinker, even though the problem, of course, in discussing this, when you start to talk about expanding one's consciousness and use, utilizing chemistry to do that, people will say, well, now, wait a minute. How can you trust what your perceptions are picking up when you're under the influence of an hallucinogenic? And I generally tend to agree with that, also having been someone who, in my first two years of college, experimented with those with those uh, uh, substances and and had some some time walking around that alternate universe well, ultimately yeah. what i to understand was that hallucinogens essentially what they did was just inform you about the complexity of your perceptions the malleability of those perceptions and as a sort of as a side effect of that the potential complexity unseen complexity of the universe of course, I, I think that to draw any definitive conclusions from a hallucinogenic experience is really very dangerous. It's just we don't know enough about how the mind plays the chemical game when you take substances to know what's really going on. And I'm not trying to disrespect the intense amount of work and effort thrown at this by uh, the many shamans of the many uh, cultural traditions on this planet. I think, again, I, that there is some, some usefulness to understanding something about how the mind reacts to these things. But again, the problem being that when we start talking about people like McKenna, that we have to realize that this is a guy who was tripping a whole lot. So, and, and again, it's not that I don't believe that those experiences are useful. I just think that when you, you bring that up in any kind of a context, talking about this stuff, it gives the quote-unquote debunkers ammo to work with saying oh man look what these guys are talking about they're talking about terence mckenna 
And that basically is all about DMT and ecstasy and astral beings. Well, you know, before we go any further, I just have to say, number one, I'm, I'm really not concerned with debunkers whatsoever. It just is not something I worry about. And number two, the human brain produces DMT. Right. Your own brain, your pineal gland, produces DMT. Sure. And so if people object to Terrence McKenna, you know, talking about DMT, well, guess what? We all produce it, and it appears to be why we dream, among other things. Right. So it's in our own head. It's in our own mind. It's part of our own neuropharmacology, if you will. And if you don't like DMT, well, then at a deeper level, you're saying don't you don't like so. yourself because your own brain makes it. Oh, boy. Well, well then we have troubles now. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bazaar sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net you're in the paracast with gene steinberg and david biedney you never know what's going to happen next You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Dr. Richard Sauter joins us, and we're talking about a lot of things, underground alien bases. Now I guess we're into altered states of consciousness. Well, you know, it brings a question around of what is an altered state of consciousness. I would submit that the average person passes their entire life in a state of what you might call altered consciousness because you have a, so to speak, blank state of an infant, and it is in a non-stop process of alteration from cradle to grave under the onslaught of schools, of religion, of politics, of the enculturation process, of advertising. Um, what is the point of commercial advertising but to alter your state of consciousness and thereby your pattern of behavior and thereby the spending of your disposable money in your billfold? Absolutely. Well, no, that is not nothing but alteration of consciousness. So, absolutely. 
The only question is not whether we are going to alter our consciousness, but what techniques of consciousness alteration we will deem are acceptable. This society has deemed that mainstream Christianity is an acceptable means of consciousness alteration. You can be washed in the blood, and that's okay. That you can be subjected to a, a lifelong barrage of advertising um, from Wall Street, and that's okay. With the naked objective of altering your consciousness and turning you into a, a slavering consumer of whatever it is that you know Main Street wants to sell you, and et cetera, et cetera. So when you say consciousness alteration, that is the specific objective of the public school system, to create your thinking process and to manufacture a being that will think in ways that are acceptable to the control stru structure in the society. Sure, it's um, basically school is about basically making you a good worker and consumer, maybe not even in that order. And, and docile and tractable, obedient to authority. Right, absolutely. And I'll, I'll add to that, Richard, that when it comes to mind-altering substances, we have to stir into that stew sugar, caffeine, chocolate, corn syrup, preservatives. I mean, yeah, take your choice, man. It, it, when it gets down to people saying, ah, I don't do any drugs. Yeah, you see that cup of coffee you're drinking? Yeah, that would be a drug that you're consuming. Oh, you see that sugar? Well, well beyond that, people say I don't, don't do drugs, but if you walk into any, any grocery store in this country and just walk down the aisle and pick items off the shelf, oh, almost at random, it is not uncommon. In fact, it is very common to find that common food items sold in an average American grocery store will have, in some cases, dozens of chemicals, substances added to them. And the only way and we the, know, let me add to what you're saying, the only way we know they're safe is because the government says it's safe. Otherwise, we haven't a clue, and how can we believe them? It is not called the Food and Drug Administration for nothing. <laughs> and what about the drugs they give kids because they have alleged behavioral problems? Attention deficit disorder or they're psychotic or something, so they stuff them filled with drugs. Let me tell you, when I was a kid, we didn't have school psychiatrists and school psychologists. Now you have public schools with their own shrinks. Because oh, multiple shrinks on duty full time. When we on were, the campus. Yeah, absolutely. And this is unheard of. This was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, this was unheard of. Perfect. And the very people, in many cases, who will object to so-called consciousness alteration have no problem with uh, sending their school, their, their kids off to school, drugged up to the gills. I really don't understand this skittishness. And people, many of whom also object to consciousness alteration in very strong terms, what is the first thing they do when they get home from work is to have a drink, to sure. steady their nerves. Absolutely. Now, look, this is a conversation. I think we're all on the same page with this. So what we then do is turn the page and say, okay, beyond what the garden variety conspiracy theorists will come up with, that uh, this is all about basically making us all into good little consumers. There are some of us, Richard, who I think believe, we don't know, but we believe that this rabbit hole goes deeper. We believe that maybe what's really happening here, and this is probably one of the most extreme things I've ever said on this show, and I'll just say it now, that the more you look into this, the more you start to believe that maybe really what's going on is that this is a planet that is enslaved. This is a planet that is not fulfilling its ethical, moral 
mission that it thinks it has. Maybe something far more noxious is going I on. I was first ex exposed to the concept of the Earth being a prison planet, or the concept of there being multiple prison planets in the galaxy back in the uh, 1980s. And it was a mind from the outset, from the initial seconds, w when the term was offered to me for the first time in my life, I grasped it right away. I grabbed it immediately. I had an instant aha moment, uh, you know, saying to myself, of course, of course it's a prison planet. That explains so much. And we are evidently uh, a captive population under control, quarantined, if you will, by others, other beings, other forces that hold themselves in the background, but, but just as in an asylum where there are inmate wardens or inmate uh, turnkeys, if you will, we also have fellow inmates here on Earth. Who is the president but a, a turnkey on the local cell block, for example, who, who answers to still others above him? Does anyone presume that George Bush is in full control of his faculties? Of course not. He clearly, clearly takes direction from someone or some others above him who, who hold them back, hold themselves back from the limelight. So there are multiple levels of control here. All right. You know, I and, wanted to focus on this. Okay. I think we're, we're hitting a point here where we have about 28 minutes left of the show, and maybe yes. this will be the pace to resist on. So, okay. The people in control, or whoever is in control, are they from this planet? or elsewhere, or some combination thereof? I think some combination, and I would say, uh, going back to a point you raised earlier, I suspect there are multiple factions and a very complex hierarchy on this planet, above this planet, and beneath and inside this planet, if you will, including under the seas and in the seabed, because it's very clear to me now that quite a lot is going on under sea and beneath the seafloor, as well as beneath the surface of dry land on this planet. I now suspect, based on the sum of total of my reading over a period of decades, when I say reading, understand that I'm talking many tens of thousands of pages of material of all kinds from many different sources, and conversations with a wide variety of people in different countries, in different stations in life, with a wealth of, of different experiences in life, academic scientists, researchers, so-called ordinary men and women in the street, uh, people from high stations in life and low. But at the end of the day, what is really high and low anyway? And a great deal of thinking and reflection and also interior experiences. Experiences. I am not an ethnobotanist like Terence McKenna was and that I have never partaken of, of mushrooms and these other exotic plants and funguses that he did. However, I nonetheless have had many very powerful inward and outward paranormal experiences, perhaps because I too, like every other single person listening to this broadcast, have DMT in my brain. And that is, as Dr. Strassman said at the University of New Mexico, the spirit molecule. It is a hyperdimension molecule that plugs our brain, modem-like, into other realms of reality and perception. Why? I don't know. How? I don't know. But the evidence is conclusive. It does. And our brains generate this molecule for whatever reason. Now, it's clear to me that um, there is 
more than one human society on this planet. I think there may be at least three, maybe more. The first one would certainly be uh, the topside surface human society that, that we are immersed in some six, approximately six to seven billion strong at this point and rapidly growing. And we're swarming everywhere all over the surface of the earth and even under the surface as we discussed. So that's the first grouping. The second grouping I strongly suspect would be relict populations, relict, R-E-L-I-C-T, in other words, holdover populations from previous cycles of high civilization on this planet such as Atlantis. In other words, I've read the books of people like David Hatcher Childress and also the um, Michael Cremo's book about forbidden archaeology and, and others. There's no question there were advanced civilizations on this planet in remote antiquity. They have left the remains of their civilization all over the place. Mainstream archaeology and anthropology do not pay sufficient attention to this. Why? I don't know, but I presume they have their blinders on as tightly as most of the rest of us. But nonetheless, the evidence is there, and I suspect that when great cataclysms occurred in the past, and they have, that not everyone died, uh, but some people um, went to high ground or went underground and secreted themselves away and uh, bred, you know, begat children and and continued their line down through the uh, subsequent centuries and millennia. And I suspect that some of those populations are still here. They may be even be numerous in number, I don't know, but they do hold themselves largely apart from us. That much is clear. And a third grouping that I suspect is here are humans from other planets. I strongly suspect, based on all the research and information I've been exposed to over the last decades, that one of the greatest motivations for this great cover-up on the part of the military-industrial espionage complex with respect to the UFO question is somewhere along the line, perhaps early on, they realized, my God, this is not the only planet in the galaxy with a resident human population. They may even have realized, my God, we're just a local human population. There are a lot of planets out there with humans on them. And I suspect that there are a fair number of them that have either come here or recently or have been coming and going for a long time, maybe centuries, maybe even many millennia. And they also have their secret installations here and keep themselves largely apart from us. But over and over and over again, many UFO abductees and encounter witnesses, close encounter witnesses, have spoken of seeing uh, UFO knots, for want of a better expression, that so closely resemble what we know as present-day Earth humans that they could pass for us if they were walking down the street. Now, if they're that close, I submit to you, if they look like us, talk like us, act like us, walk like us, maybe they really are us. And what you come down to then is the idea of a prison planet where we have a race or sub-race or subspecies of humans, which would be us topside terrestrial contemporary Earth humans who are sequestered away on this nice terrestrial planet on the outer one outer spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy, and we're kind of kept here nice and quiet and controlled in our little planetary straitjacket. Very, very peculiar. Now, you also have these other beings who appear to be non-human. 
reptilians, little greys, insectoid beings, and others. Some people have reported seeing bird-like beings and, and what have you. Now, it may be that there are also other species of intelligent, technologically capable life out there in the galaxy or even right here on Earth. Perhaps there have been other cycles of evolution wherein you had bird species, reptilian species, insect species, and by the way, the insects have been here longer than the reptiles and birds by far, and maybe all of these forms of life also resulted in intelligent species that attained a high technology capability, and maybe this is also their home planet. Maybe we are just the most recent you know, to come along, and maybe, in fact, we are not even native to this planet. Remember, Australia, for example, was first colonized by um, the British emptied out their prisons and sent convicts to Australia. It was a prison colony, in a sense, to begin with. Our state of Georgia here in the United States initially uh, had a lot of convicts coming to it as well. So we, even in our own experience, have this idea of convict societies or prison colonies, if you will. Maybe there's an analog to that in galactic society, and maybe at a soul level, maybe if you mess up too much, they say, you know, this genetic line, this DNA here is compromised, it's impure, whatever, we'll send all of this over to Earth and let them work it out if they can. I'm not well, saying that's the case, but what if something like that is? Well, you know, just to add to those possibilities, Richard, maybe the diversity of genetic species on this planet ends up making us the seed bank for the local galactic territories. Maybe the vast diversity of life on this planet is uh, supplying other planets with with robust genetics for their own development work. I think that if you look at... I don't exclude at, that either. That, that's certainly an idea that has been bandied about and, and has merit. I don't think we know enough to exclude much of anything at this point. I think our, our thinking really needs to range. We need to open our minds without losing them, if you will, and, and, and be creative and, and, and perceptive and not... Other people are going to put blinders on us. We don't need to assist them by further censoring our own minds and ideas and, and perceptions. I, I think that's certainly one of the possibilities, and it would be consistent with, with behavior that has been observed again and again on the part of these entities that appear to be coming here from somewhere else. Or are they? You know, Adamski, I, I believe Adamski really did uh, see and photograph bell-shaped UFOs back in the 50s and early 60s, and I believe mm -hmm, mm -hmm, he really no. did meet with these human human beings. Hold it, hold it, hold it, Venus. hold it. No. Sorry, Richard. That's one place where... If you're talking about those ridiculous little toy models that he yes. filmed and photographed, those were obviously nonsensical. Sorry. Yeah. That's, All right. I don't. They were look. Some of them looked like GE light bulbs. The bottoms of these flying saucers because they were GE light bulbs, and yeah. you know, so GE was involved in the Adamski conspiracy. Well, no, I think it's important to to bring these things up because you know, Richard. Here's the thing. There are so many cases of contactees where you start to scratch a little bit and a lot of pus comes up, and you're like, all right, that's it. And I don't mean to be rude or anything, but you know, it's to me the Adamski stuff is up there with the Billy Meyer nonsense. It's nonsense. Uh, you know, you have fake photographic evidence, fake filmed evidence. Why place any trust in someone who's going to fake things? 
if something's really happening to them, there's no reason to fake a damn thing in this whole equation. See, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it was faked or not. Well, as I started this episode, with the preamble that that y- y- you missed was me saying that look, the one thing I'm an expert on yes. is digital imaging and visual effects. This is yes. something I am a I'm a recognized expert in these topics. Yes. Um, when I look at something like the Adamski situation and I look at the stuff he shot that is so obviously faked, it's faked. Now, you know, there are some people that might say, well, it was made to look fake so you would question the veracity of it. Well, that's a logical game that basically you can never win. You know, because it's kind of like, and it ties right back into the larger discussion of if we are so malleable as creatures in terms of our perception of the world, and this is this requires well, except that you know. except that these bell-shaped craft have been photographed by others, and I would say that I've personally spoken with and seen the material that Madeline Rodifer has, and I, I watched a, a short eight-millimeter film uh, that she took in, the, in her yard in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, when Adamski came to visit her, and I watched this. Uh, it's actually very aesthetically pleasing. This bell-shaped craft which hovered there. And it kind of bobbed, it reminded me of a, a rowboat bobbing and a slight, slight swell, which again, many people who observed UFOs have reported. I've never seen, seen it for myself, but it was very interesting. And when it got ready to go, it kind of elongated a little bit and then zip, it was out of there. It surprised me. It had kind of a, um, what I might describe as a very light, cobalt blue cover on its bell or on its flange uh it was it was i liked looking at it and it had portholes i asked her if she saw anything in the portholes and she said yes i did and i asked her what she saw and she said well i saw a couple of young men who came and looked at me and i said well what did they look like and she said well they were in their 20s or 30s and uh they had crew cut hair and uh, i said well you know what were their racial characteristics and she said they were uh white men they were caucasians and i also saw the color photos she took of that the polaroid she took some still photos it was there for i don't know a minute or two they as well were um very clear and taking it fairly short range well i'll tell you what before we go into the photos and david's yes. the man when it comes to photos and i think has he seen personally her evidence let's go into that in a moment Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. 
And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. That's one small step to Armageddon. 2019, the moon. A Soviet spacecraft found after half a century holds the darkest secret of the moon race and the hope of all humanity. Red, red, red. Paul Levinson, the award-winning author of The Silk Code, writes, The novel Red Moon is a masterpiece, an adventure that you'll never forget. Red, red, red. By David S. Michaels and Daniel Brenton. Available now at Amazon.com. Find out more at Luna15.com. That's L-U-N-A-1-5. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the Powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Dr. Richard Sauter joins us. He's covered a lot of ground about underground bases, alien and otherwise. Now we're getting into an area where he is getting into David's territory. David, what kind of questions do you have for him about this? Well, listen, without having seen these specific clips, I can't comment on them. I can only comment, that, comment on the Adamski clips I've seen that are, and I underscore this, absolutely fabricated. So I haven't seen these other pieces, but I have to question someone's credibility when they are willing to offer up, obviously, fabricated photographic evidence. That, to me... Yeah, well, I, I never met with Adamski. I, I've never seen his evidence in person, but I have met Madeline Rodefer personally, and um, I actually held it in my hand. They were the original Polaroid photos from years ago, and also I saw personally the um, old 8-millimeter film that she showed, and I didn't detect any any dissimulation in her whatever other than a very straightforward woman who was presenting what she experienced uh, directly, personally, in her own yard in Bethesda, Maryland. All right. Well, you know what? They could be highly compelling, but I haven't seen it, so it would be silly for yeah. me to know one way or another. And this again, of course. And I would, and I must say as well that I have seen UFOs myself, and I very clearly, as a matter of fact, one of the best sightings I ever had was in 1989 in Albuquerque in the Northeast Heights. I was watching the Sandia Mountains because I'd seen a couple of jets scramble out of Kirtland Air Force Base and fly right up along the flank of Sandias, headed up generally in the direction of Los Alamos, and. I found that a little unusual because they were flying so close to the mountain, closer than usual. And then I noticed after they cleared the area that the air over over the northern end of the Sandia Range, over Sandia Peak, was shimmering, somewhat in the manner that air shimmers, hot air shimmers over an asphalt parking lot on a hot summer day in mid-August. And I found that strange because, in fact, it was the middle of the winter. It was in January, and the air is crystal clear at altitude over the mountains. That would have been like 12,000 feet altitude, something like that. And I found that strange, so I was watching it. And as I watched it, just seemingly out of nowhere, these five large multicolored spheres popped into view. 
they, they just, I don't know, materialize there or appear there. And I found that very peculiar, and, and I was watching them, in fact, for about 20 minutes. And they were clearly not um, conventional aircraft of any kind. I watched them move together over over the top of the mountains and, and out of sight um, to the east. And then after that, I called Kirtland Air Force Base to report, and I said, you know, I just had a UFO sighting, and, and the officer on charge at the duty desk said, well, you know, since with the completion of Project Blue Book, uh, the Air Force no longer takes UFO reports. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Nonetheless, I did see some UFOs. Can I talk to anyone? They said, there was a female officer, and she said, well, I'm sorry, you know, no, we don't take reports. We just don't because the Air Force's position is that they're... UFOs don't exist, and with completion of Project Blue Book, we don't investigate these things. And I said, well, right, but can I talk to someone? And she says, well, I can uh, switch you over to so-and-so. And she connected me to someone else. The line went totally dead, like vacuum-like. And I, I felt like, like, like she had cut me off. And then a man came on the line and identified himself as an officer. I believe he was a colonel, if I remember correctly. And he said, you understand that Project Blue Book is complete and the Air Force no longer takes uh, UFO reports from the general public. I said, yes, sir, I understand that. And he said, okay, tell me what you saw. <laughs> Interesting. And we had a conversation. Mm -hmm. I, I bet he was taking notes. Well, more than taking notes, every time after I would finish speaking, the line would go dead. It would sound like more than as if you hung up the phone, vacuum-like dead. And then I would I would say, are you still there? And he would come back on and say, I'm still here. Go ahead. Keep talking. And it was the most peculiar conversation I've ever had. But after several minutes of that, he said, is that it? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, thank you very much. And the line went absolutely dead with total finality. So there the Air Force that no longer takes UFO reports, in fact, does. <laughs> what else is new? If they don't refer you to somebody else, you know, some say call the local police department or something like that. Well, and in fact, a couple of days later, I had two investigators come to my door, knock on my door. I was living in a small efficiency apartment in the Northeast Heights, and um, I noticed them first peering through the window. I didn't know who they were, but I didn't like the looks of them very much, so I went to the door, whereupon they flashed badges and, and identified themselves as detectives with the Albuquerque Police Department, and they wanted to know if I, if I was harboring a fugitive from justice. Hmm. And um, they didn't have a search warrant, but they were peering over my shoulder trying to see what was in my apartment. I didn't ask them in. If indeed they were harboring a fugitive and thought he was in my place, I think they would have had a warrant. At the time, I gathered they came calling because of the uh, call that I had made to the Air Force. And... Um, the one of them was a blonde Caucasian, very blonde, very Caucasian, northern European type. The other was a very dark man, dark and kind of short, very darkly complected, not Negro, but he was one of the most darkly complected people I have ever seen in my life. He looked to be Mexican, but he was perhaps the darkest complected Mexican or human being uh, of any race or ethnicity that I have ever seen in my life. They were the most peculiar pair of Bobsy twins I have ever encountered anywhere. Mm. 
that leads to another question, Richard, in, in the work that you've done, and you've associated your name with this topic. Um, outside of that encounter, have you ever been pressured or harassed in any way about this? I don't know. If if I have been, it hasn't been, um, you know, delivered to me in just those terms. But, yes, I mean, I have had uh, harassment uh, over the years, but, but how much of that that is just from growing up and living in a society such as this, a very heavily controlled society, I'm not, uh, I'm not able to tell how much of it is directed at me personally and how much comes from just living in a barbaric society. I was out hunting for underground bases one day and I was shot at. Um, I was in a rural area of New Mexico and I was there because I thought there was an underground base there and I still think there probably was, is one there. Um, and as I was climbing on uh, the side of a hill there, I saw a van, an Air Force blue van. For those who don't know about the Air Force, they have blue vans, minivans that they that they own and they uh, carry personnel around in. And anyway, I saw this Air Force blue van pull up on the range nearby, and I saw five or six men get out with high-powered rifles. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it's a bunch of guys that came out here to do some target shooting. And I didn't worry too much because in the, in the rural west, it's not that uncommon for people just to go out and target shoot. It's sort of a pastime. And so um, when they unleashed a volley in my direction, uh, I thought perhaps they didn't see me. And I could hear the, the bullets whistle past me in the air. And so I shouted at the top of my lungs for them not to shoot that I was hiking over there, whereupon they leveled the guns right at me and shot again. And I had bullets ricocheting off of rocks in my immediate vicinity, like in an Italian western, in a spaghetti western. It was, I was panic-stricken. What can I say? Were you in an I area that was designated as being off-limits? Pardon me? You in an area that was clearly marked as being off-limits? I won't say where I was. But was it clearly marked as being off-limits? Um, I, 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 I won't even say where I was to that extent. Oh. I will say that um, I left the area immediately. I took cover and ran out of there as, as quickly as I could. Um, and they shot at me on my way out multiple times. Uh, I wasn't hit. I think they were trying to scare me away and not hit me, although... Who knows? I heard the bullets very carefully, very, very clearly, whiffling past me in the air. They make a very distinctive sound, and you can hear them coming and hear them going. So, so Richard, I mean, you know, coming sort of to the end of this episode, and, and I, know, I know we'd like to have you back on because I have a whole list of questions I haven't gotten asked you yet about about maglev technology, about your interactions with Walt Kirshner. Um, I have a bunch of questions about that, but yeah. I, we're going to have to have you on again. There's no question about that if you're Well, right. anytime. But uh, let me just, uh, let, let's wrap this, this episode with the, the hard question. Do you think there's any way that any of us who are interested in this are ever going to get any closer to knowing what the deal truly is with these underground bases? Given we're already closer. By virtue of my work, there's no question there are underground bases, that they can be very deep. Uh, we know some of the agencies involved, some of the companies involved. We know that a lot of money is just disappearing 
into a black hole. We also know that the electrogravitics and anti-gravity research trail and the technical documentation literature ran dry in the 50s and, and early 60s. It almost certainly was taken black. And I assume that some of these flying saucers that have been seen, including in the 60s, um, that people assume are fake because they're so clear, in fact, aren't, but were prototypes flown and built and designed, including by Fortune 500 companies, including perhaps one of the aforenamed companies we referred to earlier in the broadcast. Okay, one more time, Richard, tell people where they can find more about your work. Well, you can certainly Google it on the Internet, and there are a variety of websites out there. My website I no longer have up. It ceased interesting me, so I took it down. But I appear occasionally at conferences. People can attend them. If I'm invited, I'm rarely invited, but sometimes I am, and people can come out for that. They can get my books from Interlibrary Loan or from Amazon.com. Interlibrary Loan, by the way, means that one library can borrow it from another library, right? You go down to your local lending library, whether at a university or a public library system, and and you tell them you would like to order a book through Inter, check out a book through Interlibrary Loan and tell them the book, and that's how you get it. And if you can't wait for the libraries to figure it out, go to Amazon Books and place your order for a copy. Are they still readily available? Yeah, there's some used copies floating around out there, and also you can uh, some of the better used bookstores, if you're lucky and you look in the paranormal or UFO or or alternative kind of um, reality section, you might find a copy or two there. Thank you very much, Richard Sauter, for joining us on the Paracast. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, guys. It was a blast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.